Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest is Pablo Vargas, Risk and Compliance Manager at FanDuel. FanDuel is a fast-growing company in the gaming industry with over 1,500 employees working with state regulators and other industry partners to bring high-quality entertainment, gambling, and sports news experiences to their users. Pablo joins us on today's podcast to talk about managing fraud risk in the gaming space and the unique challenges gaming leaders face for both online and in-person sales domains. Throughout the episode, Pablo pulls from his larger experiences in financial services to frame how to think of customer journeys in the gaming industry as the sector begins to sense its own longevity. Today's episode is sponsored by Riskified, and without further ado, here's our conversation. Pablo, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast this week. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. As we were discussing, I'll give uh, the audience a little bit of a sneak behind the curtain here. Uh, we were just discussing a, a little bit off mic that, especially in the the retail and e-commerce spaces, that to think about fraud at this point in 2023 still begs that we need to look at kind of a pre and post pandemic situation for fraud in the most recent history to kind of understand the best ways to address the problem going forward, especially from a data perspective. I was hoping you could lead us with why you think that's the case and uh, what we're seeing now as compared to the pandemic in terms of trends from retail and e-commerce. So from a retail perspective, I think you really need to look at the holistic picture. And that is a macroeconomic type of view. I believe that the behavior of your average consumer has changed. And thus, it takes all of the old models, all of the old data, and kind of changes the behavior in such a manner that that data is not useless, but it is certainly needing to be massaged and understood of those changes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this this occurs into a much larger framework of not just that consumers are under the microscope in terms of data, but also that they're aware of it. And I don't want to lean on too many cliches of kind of like, the you know, the Heisenberg principle or observer syndrome, but just keeping that in mind that there is a change in behavior, not only in the fact that, you know, we know more about consumers than we ever have before, that, that even where their behavior has volleyed from online and during pandemic and back into the physical world, much more armed with uh, sensorial intake in terms of devices and being able to collect more data. And from there, coming back into a world where they not only are being tracked in a, in a deeper sense, but they know it as well. And that there's a trade-off between that and privacy. Right for where we are, it's you know late 2023. I think a lot of the initial kind of Sputnik moment that happened with artificial intelligence kind of feels like it was in October 2022. And we've accepted certain brave new worlds going forward. Where do you think we're at in terms of looking at the challenges in terms of a retail space like gaming when it comes to anti-fraud workflows now in 2023, maybe as compared to during or before the pandemic? Yeah, that's a really good point here, because I think that the artificial intelligence wave is at full throttle right now. 
everyone is talking about it. Everyone is buzzing about it. But the truth is, this type of technology, machine learning, modeling has been around for a long time. And I think that this conversation that we're having today is probably going to be something that really helps push us into the next level. I think a lot of the challenges in the past has been, is it really possible? Is it really functional? Is it worth it? What are the consequences of it? And there was a lot of hesitancy to apply this to outside of the norm, right? So if you want to give someone a credit score, great. They love information, data, build a model, machine learning, throw everything at it. But then when you talk about a retail location, behavior, how can we mitigate or process certain transactions or bad actors, they don't want to think about machine learning. They want to think about humans, right? And so this type of conversation is really important in order to help people say, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not just for maximizing profit, but we can actually apply some of this data points and technology to say, hey, we can detect certain patterns to say, hey, this looks like anti-money laundering issue. This looks like someone is trying to do something here. Something looks funky. Let's take a look at it, right? Right, right. You bring up a really, really great point because I think in terms of it it happens where it gets looked at from a data perspective. It happens where you're looking at it top down from a management perspective. But you think the problem is in this one dark corner of the business. And that might be a compliance issue or something else. I know we're having a radically different conversation about customer experience and call centers and financial services. And that used to be thought of as a thing, oh, way off, you know, in in the corner of the business where management does not want to hear from the customer traditionally. And now that is a completely different conversation. Now they know that if their customer experience is comparable to that of the DMV, as it was traditional when I was coming up through financial services, you know, uh, my generation was dealing with with call centers in terms of banks, then they know that they're really going to stand to lose market share. And I think even, you know, in a lot of when we start to look at those problems in a different way, we know that, as you were saying, account takeovers or behavior that is in AML unit workflows, that has a lot to do with the overall customer experience. That has a lot to do even where we're prioritizing the sale at all times or the customer experience versus cracking down on the worst actors, which I know is is, is always the trade-off. Fitting into that calculus is the fact that at the end of the day, so much of AML workflows just means a broader customer experience. Am I picking up what you're putting down? I just want to check in there. No, yeah, for sure. It's a little bit of all of the above, right? Sure, right. Back in the day when I was helping write out some algorithms to detect check fraud, one of the biggest concerns was do not impact a good customer. Right. Right. You do not want to give headaches. And again, I think that the conversation needs to be had at a wider level of saying, okay, what tools are actually out there to help us accomplish these things? Because again, from my experience in the, in the past, you want to talk about credit scoring, you want to talk about maximizing profits. Yes, throw all the data, the models in there, right? When you talk about other random parts of the business, that conversation doesn't really exist, and it should. 
Right, right. Absolutely. Something else we had spoken about in depth off microphone that I think bears a little bit into the rest of the conversation in terms of what the audience should probably listen for and and, and get the most from your responses is we talked a lot about not just what you guys see on the digital side in terms of fraud, but what you see in brick and mortar, what you see in the physical space. And that's tough for you guys, of course, because you, as you were describing, at least for the kinds of fraud you're looking at, often it's through that you're operating kind of as a third party with within a venue most likely some sort of like gambling, larger gambling establishment. And that gambling establishment usually has in, in kind of in their minds, you know, v- very much state regulatory concerns in terms of compliance, in terms of where their biggest headaches are. And, uh, you know, they're trying to keep you happy. There's uh, good business involved all at the same time. You know, the biggest headaches are the biggest headaches. I've got a pile of them waiting for me in my Gmail inbox right now. I'm sure you do as well. <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering if we can touch a little bit on on how much you can track in the digital space versus being inside that filter, how how you balance those kind of two relationships out and how you're working with those various stakeholders to best represent your interests in terms of a data collection and capability perspective. Yeah, so there's a lot there, right? If you're talking specifically about the gaming industry as it is growing in the United States, it is one of the most complicated and muddy things that we can probably look at in terms of an industry. Right now, as gaming grows, we are having to work with not just companies, but governments, right? And if the government is speaking one language, the companies are speaking another language, and yet another party comes in and speaks a different language, this is going to cause a lot of headaches, misunderstandings, and inefficiencies at the end of the day. Ideally, what occur is everyone sits at a table, talks about what are the challenges, how can we make this fair for not just the companies or the third parties or the vendors, but for the government, for regulations. But that just doesn't really happen. So that in itself provides countless headaches where data points from company A do not talk to data points from company B. And at the end of the day, X amount of data has to be funneled into the regulatory space and there has to be 15 different levels of checks and very manual processes in order to get all of that done, right? So the inefficiencies are incredible. If we could all sit down and say, hey, we already do this in another sectors, right? In other industries, how can we translate some of those efficiencies into these online or retail gaming industries, right? And these are a lot of conversations that need to be had that are honestly going very, very slow. And to be honest, we are in a growth state. So there's a lot of companies fighting for attention, for advantages, for anything that can put them over the top. And so it's not as mature as, let's say, Mm -hmm. cell phone wireless industries, right? where we have the main players, it's all been established. The wars are over, right? There there used to be 200 companies providing cell phone service. Now there's four and a few minor regional providers. Right now, there are tons and tons of gaming companies out there, and they're all trying their best to kind of say, hey, we are the ones, 
we will be best friends with the government. We will be best friends with the established gaming companies already. And everyone is just refusing to kind of cooperate. But that's just short term, right? Long term, you have to use the data. You have to use the efficiencies. You have to consolidate. And you have to kind of create a process that works for everybody. Sure. And even I think folks out there definitely have kind of an idea of the larger dynamics, kind of the macro that we were talking about before in terms of, you know, even not just consumers post pandemic, but just also your specific industry. But even for where you guys are and maybe if we can put a finer point here, how much is having that data as an advantage? And do you kind of just see the strategy going forward? And you've worked at places like like Bank of America. You've kind of worked at a lot of places that are looking at that kind of bigger macro picture. How are you thinking just in terms of, you know, being able to collect on the data side and how valuable that is to you guys in terms terms of where you are in the information chain and the the other partners that that you're working with. I imagine you're kind of feeling like, "Hey, we'll we'll take any data we can get from the casino, from the state, you know. That helps our interest and that probably helps them out as well as we're a kind of a repository and an engine for it, really." Yeah, so it's funny because with the gaming industry, there's two sides of it, right? There's the retail side and then the completely online side. On the online side, that is where we want most of our business to go through because at that point we get customer information from the get-go a customer walking into a retail location and placing a ten dollar bet on any game anything requires zero information so we don't know who the customer is we don't know what source of funds are we don't know anything right so what we want is everyone to go through online now to your point do we want all of the information that's possible? Yes, but we want good, clean data, yeah. right? And I think that that is part of the challenge right now is how long has the gaming industry been around? Not very long, right? So you get a lot of smart business people to come together, create this industry, but half of them don't really come from the background of data analytics and the importance of data quality insurance and stuff like that. So it does get a little muddy and we're playing catch up almost when it comes to this data acquisition, right? Right. What is available? What is not available? Why is it clean? Why is it not clean? How can we improve these processes? Can we trust this data? So when, when it comes to retail specific, it really does become a challenge of, okay, what data can we get? How do we not impede on customers? How do we try to reward customers we're giving us information without making it look like we're encouraging them to play more, right? There's a lot of dynamics that makes data gathering a challenge in the brick and mortar space when it comes to gaming, especially when you are a partner to another entity that holds their information very closely and does not share. Totally. And and even just pulling from lessons, you know, going back to your mainstream banking experience in terms of 
just having an onboarding process. And you were even noting some of the substantial challenges you got right there. You can't make it look like you want them to game more. You want them to have a broader experience in terms of their interface with you. You don't want that to be adding more friction, but you also want it to be somewhere where you you want them to have a maximum information transfer of the relevant information involved. Tell us a little bit, if you can, and you can pull from both sides just in terms of banking and gaming here, just in terms of, you know, what headways are being made in terms of being able to broaden that onboarding experience in a meaningful way that gets you real ID-based information, not just, you know, that they're using the app more or playing more. Yeah, I think that this is something that the world is still working on as a whole. In my many years at a financial company, part of the challenge was to get a holistic picture of the customer. How is it that a customer can come into, let's say, a bank and hand over X amount of money to put in their savings account, open up a credit card, and then at the same time, that company not know whether they qualify for a home loan or not, right? It's like, well, if we have so much information from them, should we not be able to identify the the population, right? So I know that there were a lot of initiatives to kind of get a holistic picture of a customer and seeing what the company as a whole can provide, right? Like, hey, where are the opportunities? How can we make the customer experience even better, smoother? And with efficiencies, everybody wins, right? In gaming, I think that because it is such an immature industry at the moment, that that is kind of like a dream state, right? Where, hey, we know all of the information. Hey, we can detect patterns of, you know, responsible gaming issues, right? We want to identify these customers because we don't want everyone to come in and just play and hand over all the money, right? That's just not how an industry works. You have to have something sustainable and something that you can rely on for years and years and years and years. And getting that information, playing the balance of, hey, give us more information and we'll reward you, right? But then regulators can come in and say, hey, why are you rewarding people to, you know, encouraging to play, right? Like there's a fine line. Like it's almost like those alcohol commercials, right? Of course. You see everyone playing and doing everything awesome. Drink this beverage because you're going to have a great time. But then at the end of it, they're like, Drink responsibly. Yeah. Right? And and you're not alone there. You're not even alone among social media applications anymore. I mean, at the end of the day, and it's a product. I mean, we're, we're seeing Congress move as fast as they humanly possibly can. <laughs> we'll put that we'll put that in its own context in terms to regulate them there. But it, it, it's a unique space for those reasons. All at the same time, you've got transactions happening. Those transactions happen more safely when you have more information. And to have that trade off of being able to be recognizing that, you know, people have a problem with this in certain areas. I have a problem with my social media applications equally. And in light of that, you need to be able to balance their use of of your app with everything else while still getting that information transfer. Just in terms of even getting that into a process where at least you're able to detect kind of the worst actors. Does that also kind of add its own filter? And you know this from all like I've been bringing up that you used to work at, you know, Bank of America. You know how this looks in other industrial sectors, in other parts of the economy. You know, do you see the behavior maybe look a little bit different in terms of the fraud given that unique space and given that there's a certain assumption of motive for why anybody might want to be using your app that you need to keep in mind for their safety and for yours? Yeah. So 
that one is a little bit of a complicated question, a complicated answer here. Yeah, sure. You can look at the behavior, and this is where machine learning, I think it's at a good point where it can adapt very quickly, but under the right guidance, right? Because no model will work forever. And that's just true. So you need to have the people who are intelligent enough, who understand the industry enough, who understand the patterns enough to kind of make sure that everything goes okay, right? And so you can look at the behavior from post-pandemic. When we were looking for fraud, third-party fraud, we knew that people were going to get attacked a lot when the government decided to start sending out stimulus checks. Okay, now we have some information, right? Does the model know that the government is about to hand out checks to people? No. Do people know? Yes. Okay, how can we input this into our model and make sure that we are detecting the correct things, allowing the correct things to go through and stopping the incorrect things going through? And again, it's a balance, right? Because you don't want to tell a family who needs that check oh, hey, it's not available because we're detecting fraud. Because if they need that check and it's a real check, you just ruined not just their day, but the reputation of the brand, right? right? There's a lot of stuff at stake in these type of situations, which is why it is important that we understand the relationship of artificial intelligence with business savviness, understanding the industry. I can give you a very easy example when I first started working, we were building a scorecard and the higher their income, the more risky they were, according to all of the data points. And that just didn't make sense, right? If you, if you want a consumer to come and buy a house, you would want them to make more money. Yeah. However, because we have people that understand the data, understand human behavior, who understand the industry, you would understand that People that don't make too much money will try to exaggerate how much they make in order to qualify for something. However, people that make a lot of money try not to expose themselves too much, right? They don't want right. banks and third-party vendors and anybody to know how much they have. So they'll tell you how much they have as long as it qualifies them, right? So let's say they're making a million dollars a year. And do we really want to expose tell Bank of America how much we really make? No, not really. How much do we need to make in order to qualify for this purchase? 500,000? Okay, cool. That's how much we make. Leave it at that, right? However, a family that's making 300,000, they need 400,000 to qualify for something. They'll find a way to say, hey, we qualify for 400,000. And yet they will perform worse in the long run of being delayed in payments, having foreclosures. The people that try to go as high as they could, they will perform worse than those who have plenty, but show less. Right. And so this is why knowing the business, knowing the data, knowing the industry has to be involved hand in hand with machine learning, artificial intelligence, anything that is related to predictive modeling. Absolutely. And the way that might translate into 
biases or anything else that from the outside might get taken for, you know, completely asinine results when that's not really, you know, from the outside, that's not what's going on at all. But I think I think the way you just answered that question really gave a lot of nuance and a lot of layers for our audience to really chew on just in terms of demographics. Really appreciate how you were able to even just kind of balance out, you know, how that would end up looking from that filter and that perspective of the data. Pablo, really appreciate you being on with us for this podcast series. Again, I think this was really illuminating just in terms of the folks at home. No, I really appreciate the opportunity and hopefully something something that I said made sense to someone. <laughs> <laughs> it, may, it all made sense to me. Thanks so much. Thank you. And before we wrap today's show, I think it's worth bearing some underscore in terms of what Pablo was saying about customer segmentation, about his particular place in his industry, and also what that industry is and the unique challenges they face in gaming between regulations and other market forces. I hope a lot of our listeners today really took out of what Pablo brought to the table and could hear a lot of parallels, perhaps not similarities, but parallels. Parallels in terms of what they're seeing day in and day out at their organizations elsewhere in financial services, of course. I think a lot of what Pablo had to say definitely had some crossover with what I hear a lot of our guests are saying is happening in insurance, just in terms of looking at folks through the prism of risk. Elsewhere, I think a lot of what Pablo had to say had to do with e-commerce and retail. And I think even approaching these sectors in a way outside of the typical way we have these conversations with enterprise and legacy organizations to talk to somebody like Pablo and talk to somebody with that background, of course, but seeing a completely different list of challenges from where they are now, I think is really eye-opening. We really appreciate Pablo being with us on the program to share his perspective. And on behalf of Daniel Fagella, our CEO and head of research, as well as the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today and we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast. Podcast.